Welcome, everybody. We're talking about cryptocurrency movements, Dogecoin going to, you know, pass the trillion dollar market cap. And of course, Bitcoin's future with Elon Musk, Bitcoin 100,000. No, sorry, wrong show. Anyways, we're here in the green room of Disrupt TV. We're going to do some quick intros of our awesome guests today. And of course, we'll jump into the count. So, John, what are you call where are you calling in from today? And what are we talking about? Oh, yes, I'm, I'm in the uh, Batcave in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. And we're going to be talking about uh, return to work. And, and the things that I think employers have overlooked. So it's gonna be interesting to see if you agree or not. Return to work due. All right. Dion, what are we talking about today and what's happening on your end and where are you? Uh, well, I'm uh, in our uh, Constellation Research offices in Washington, DC, uh, also known as my home. Um, and uh, I'll be talking about uh, two new things, research that we just had come out, uh, OKRs, so objectives and key, re uh, key results, uh, and as well as uh, digital experience management, and same thing that John's going to talk about, the return to work, hybrid work, everyone's buzzing about that. There's no return to office for us, John. We're already at home. <laughs> and Jennifer, where are we calling in from? What are we talking about today? Yeah, I'm calling in from the Washington, D.C. area, so not too far from another guest. And I'm actually at the office today. We have a work from anywhere policy, and today I'm in at the office at Three Pillar Global. And we're going to be talking about digital transformation, omni-channel strategy, and what we're seeing, what I'm seeing, what the market is seeing when it comes to how companies and, and businesses and brands are interacting with their consumers. Very, very cool. All right, we're gonna do the honors. L, all yours, take us to the game. So, all right. <laughs> <we put. laughs> Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and Breaking News. He's going to be the best-selling author of an upcoming book that's going to come out in, uh, in a few months. His new book is Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants, a must-read book that we're going to talk about. Uh, Ray's a regular television business and technology news contributor. You can see him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, NBC, Wall Street Journal, and Cheddar. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> I see he's gotten the book, uh, an advanced copy that is. Well, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Ashar, who's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his tweets, his inspirations, and of course, ideas. Uh, when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him on Business TV, on Bloomberg, and of course, posting insightful analyses at ZDNet. So, but with that, it's not about us, it's about our awesome guests, and who do we have to kick it off today? Ray, it's our pleasure to have Jennifer Ives, Senior Vice President, Global Partnerships and Alliances at Three Pillar Global. Three Pillar Global builds breakthrough software products that power digital businesses. Named by the Software Report as one of the top 50 women leaders in SaaS and named to the esteemed Business Transformation 150 list by Constellation Research, Jennifer is a successful business executive with proficiency in areas of B2B software, strategic growth, business development, marketing, and communications. Jennifer is credited with launching companies, creating go-to-market growth strategies, opening new markets, and driving double-digit revenues in digital economies. Jennifer has led a P&L of greater than $35 million and experienced crafting innovation-based growth and market strategy for private companies, high growth startups, and government entities alike. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter at IamJives, <laughs> I-A-M-J-I-V-E-S. Welcome, Jennifer, to the Shrub TV. Thank you. My goodness, what an honor to be with you both today. I really appreciate it. And that introduction was, was uh, Fantastic, thank you, especially the I am Jives. I love, <laughs> I love that. As a Twitter power user, I saw it and I'm like, wow, that's an awesome handle. That's very cool. Yeah, that is you. one of the best handles out there. Um, <laughs> and in that digital age, handles are just as important. And when we think about what's been going on in the last couple of years, right? I mean, e-commerce was hot in 2020, but think about what is omni-channel strategy to 2021 as e-commerce was 
in 2020. We'll kick it off there and let's let's talk about what's going on in your end because this is the heart of almost every single digital transformation, digital business project today. It is, it is. Gosh, that's such a good question. I love how you framed it and, uh, you know, the kind of the omni-channel strategy of 2021 and as, as e-commerce was to 2020. So over the last year, you know, digital investments have mostly focused on customer-facing products. And as we move back to um, whatever the new normal is, right, that's going to be back to some in-person, some in, if it's retail, some in-store shopping. Let's just use retail as an example that retailers will continue to need to find ways to empower the, the consumers of those products, as well as empower store associates and help with that profitability. So those digital products can really help meet the need and omnichannel strategies will only strength, strengthen this process for the retailers and the customers. And it's all about customer experience, omnichannel strategy. Channels are really about the ways that you um, engage with, with your consumers. Again, whether that's you're in retail, whether that's marketing, if it's insurance, if it's government, it's how you are interacting, right? What channels are you using? And omnichannel is all about the customer experience, putting the customer at the center of that experience um, and really having a customer focus. So uh, it's, it's all about omni-channel in 2021 and moving forward. So when, when I hear engage with your customers, and it depends on different sectors, different industries, but you know where they're researching, the websites they're visiting, social media sites, they may have mobile, mobile apps that they've installed, email, text, chat, uh, according to my company's research, the average consumer engages with a brand across average uh, 10 channels um, and they continue to grow. Uh, I find myself this year more on, you know, Twitter spaces or Clubhouse or using more text applications than the year before and certainly the year before that. So uh, can you can you you know, define for our audience one more time, what is omnichannel and should companies just start with a multi-channel strategy so that they at least have more than one or two or three places where they can engage with their customers before they mature into really understanding how to create an omni, omni-channel strategy? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So that that's such a great point. So multi-channel is, is all about eyeballs on a site or eyeballs on a page. It's, it doesn't matter who those eyeballs are. It just is increasing number of likes, increasing number of views, increasing, you know, using the, the multi-channel approach to increase uh, volume, increase uh, eyeballs, right? Likes, thumbs up, all those things. Sure. The omni-channel strategy is taking that a next, the next step further. And it's actually putting the consumer or the customer in the center of that experience. And so what's different about that is that the consumer feels that immediately. They feel like they are in fact at the center of what is going on around them. So they are able to um, engage in a way that is comfortable to them. They may want to call, they may want to um, engage through the app, they may want to engage through website, but it's the consistency across the board and across their experience that makes the difference. And it really adds value. And you mentioned some statistics. I mean, there are, there are Harvard Business Review and Forbes and Salesforce, you know, uh, large companies, McKinsey, they've all done research. And what we're seeing at Three Pillar Global also is that this digital transformation is putting the customer experience at the heart of any digital experience and making sure that the experience is similar across the board. So that again, wherever the customer chooses to engage with that brand, is um is is a similar experience and one that that they feel comfortable with you know but i'm gonna jump in real quick and say like you mean more than just omni-channel right when we're talking about different channels you're also talking about business models you're talking about monetization models behind it it's not just about getting the digital channel up there right so so your omni-channel strategy conversation is so much deeper talk about like what people should be considering because you know a lot of people are like oh i just put a channel up it's gonna be great mm -hmm. and you're like yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Such, again, a great, great question and, and 
direction to take the conversation. So in, in doing so, what you want to do is completely, as you mentioned, dig into that business um, model that you're, that you're looking at. Dig into how it is that you're engaging and how you want to engage with your consumers. Again, we can talk about retail. Like Disney's done this beautifully. USAA has done this beautifully. Um, Bank of America, Starbucks. There are a lot of brands out there who have done a really wonderful job at putting that consumer at the center of the experience, adjusting business models so that the strategy of the business fits the consumer, that customer experience, and drives that customer experience forward. There are many statistics, and I'm going to read some of them because I want to get them right. Um, we find this all the time. Where you know, it's, we'll we'll talk about retail, right? Seventy-three percent of shoppers use a multi-channel experience while shopping. 73% and that's that's for retail, right? For and that was that's HBR. Forbes has shown that 81% of shoppers check the internet before going to the store. Now that was pre-COVID. Think of what that number is going to be post-COVID when people start returning to brick and mortar to in-store shopping experiences um, as they did before COVID. Another to, uh, another number that I, I always keep uh, front of mind and when we're talking with, especially with our retail and other uh, industry leaders that we work with at Three Pillar Global, um, HBR has shown that customers are 30% more valuable, right? Omni-channel customers are 30% more valuable. That's a huge number when you're looking at those business models, the business strategies that you're putting into place. And the repeat customers, this is what I love, the repeat customers are only 8% of the total base, but they create 40% of your revenue. So if you've got that wow. omni-channel approach, which is really focused, digging, driving right into the customers that are brand loyal to you and making sure that they have many ways to interact with you, the revenue that you can generate indirect and direct skyrockets. Wow. You know, the, the notion on Disney was really interesting. And sorry if I jumped in here. Okay. I was just, the, the Disney piece is um, very interesting because what Disney has done is really taken, like, I can't be in the park, but I can monetize the library, right? And that whole notion on Disney Plus actually popping out out of nowhere to become the number two streaming service globally overnight has basically created the merger and acquisition disruption that's going on at AT&T and Verizon where they're shedding their assets and things like MGM are being spoiled to Amazon, right? You see like the battle for content happening. It's, I mean, they couldn't compete spending $17 billion on content or compete with content libraries that were there. So that's pretty powerful in terms of that Disney example. Yeah, what a great example of a company pivoting when the world went decentralized, digital only, and because of the safety requirements, yeah, they had to shut down parks. So uh, an entire different line of business exploded in the last 15 months, as you said. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's what's really inspiring is when a big company like Disney can make that transition. Um, it certainly signals to to companies, perhaps smaller or startups, that, uh, you know, um, th there is opportunities that exist when you're going through a crisis like we have in the last 15 months. And we've had guests on the show, Jennifer, that, that have said that the pandemic was a, perhaps a decade accelerant in terms of adoption, both cultural and digital. For example, e-commerce saw a 10-year adoption acceleration, I think just April, May, June of last year. And our research shows that in January, February, March, we still see 58% year-over-year growth uh, in terms of e-commerce uh, traffic and orders. And, and depending on what country, like Canada, we saw 111% growth. Uh, so again, depending on where you are combating the pandemic, you still see massive adoption of these digital technologies. My question is, do you find that there is now a greater sense of urgency in terms of modernizing your, maybe your sales, marketing, service, e-commerce technology stack? Because in order to uh, capture those signals across these channels in real time and do something meaningful with it, you do have to lean into a certain set of technologies. We've had folks that have talked to CDP as an important technology for precision uh, response to unique individuals across multiple devices, marketing automation so you can do journey mapping, content management systems, social listening tools. So combination of technologies, and I think this is why your company plays a pivotal role because most businesses may not have uh, a full understanding of what that tech stack needs to look like in order for you to have a strong omni-channel strategy. Can you talk about how you work with CIOs and CMOs and CDOs to 
really uh, bring this art of the possible to life by leveraging key, key technologies. Absolutely. So it, it's, it, it's interesting. A few years ago, those involved in digital transformation or the, the, a, a digital strategy in the business, those were mainly your chief technology officers, a little bit of CIO. And now you see, as you mentioned, chief digital officers, you see chief marketing officers more and more owning the product, the digital products of that brand or of that company. Um, so you're seeing lots of different executives that are now owning pieces of digital and that digital strategy and where the omni-channel omni strategy comes into play as well. At 3Pillar, we're building those custom products that drive so much of that strategy, right? Drive the engagement with the brand. And whether it's retail that we've talked about or you know some examples for media and information services, to your point, those CIOs, chief digital officers, chief marketing officers, chief product officers, they're all looking at ways to improve and it all comes down to data. So looking at the data that you have existing, right? So now we're moving just slightly off, uh, not off topic from omni-channel strategy, but a piece of that omni-channel strategy because you have to know what data you have, where the data is, is it clean? Is it sitting in a lake? How are you gonna structure it? What are you then gonna do with the data to improve your digital, um, your, basically your digital relationship with your with your customers, with your consumers or customers. And, and then is there data that you can clean and do something with and actually create a new product, a new way mm -hmm. to engage with your consumers? And you mentioned Disney as a great example. So many of companies, whether they're large global enterprise or they're emerging technology companies or they're traditional companies that are moving, and it gets back to digital transformation, that are moving towards a more digital approach to engaging with their customers. And again, those customers could be retail customers, they could be insurance customers, they can be government, right? If, the, if, if someone in a community or within the country is trying to engage with government, there are ways that you can digitally transform. And I believe it all goes back to data, how we're using data, where the data is coming from, how clean it is, all the things that I just mentioned. Um, that's, that's an area of huge growth. And for that chief marketing officer, digital officer, information officer, um, those executives that, that are touching internal data, I'm sorry, internal technologies and software platforms and digital platforms, as well as those external, right? The ones that are that are touching their clients or their customers. We could have a whole, we, we could have an incredibly robust conversation about data, what it means, data analytics, data science, AI, machine learning, and it all feeds into what you then see as, the, as this omni-channel strategy and omni-channel approach to engaging and putting the customer first. No, it's great points there. And uh, definitely, I mean, we're seeing that happen across the board. Um, the, the channels actually are data collection vehicles, right? I mean, in digital, every choice is a demand signal. You have attribution, right? You know, uh, context, you know, location, time, you know, which journey they were in, you know, what they're touching, you know, the people that were around them. You even know what they felt like, you know, like, were they happy? Were they sad? Right. And that data plays a big role in the, in the overall omni-channel experience. Um, for you, in terms of like what you're thinking with your clients, right? I mean, what are the benefits they're seeing immediately from delivering on omni-channel that they say, you know, this is a differentiator. It's worth the investment. We shouldn't have waited. Uh, you know, we waited too late. I mean, you know, what are some of those regrets and, and how do they move forward with that? Yeah, so some of the regrets um, are generally throughout the industry are generally in COVID, uh, as as Vala already mentioned, some of the statistics around COVID increasing um, um, industries adoption of, of you know digitally transforming. Some of those regrets had been um, that they had talked about it. Companies uh, throughout the world, right, had talked about their digital transformation, had talked about the omni-channel uh, strategy, but they hadn't put it into practice. They, you know, they kept saying six months from now or next year, or we'll plan the strategy this year and then we'll do it next year. Mm -hmm. And then COVID came along and changed everything. And it required the, the boards of companies and the CEOs of companies to immediately engage with the CIO, the CDO, the chief product officer, the chief marketing officer in a very different way because those voices became even more important than they were before. But those voices within companies became very important. And what we saw and what, what I think the world experienced and what you see across all industries is, is that need to increase engagement. So the benefit, right, what they're what they're all working on, the business goal that, that everyone is working towards is increasing engagement. 
How can you increase the engagement with your, with your customer, with your client? It's all about making sure that the customer experience, customer experience has taken off a focus on customer experience. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. And I've been uh, in the digital world and, and on the engineering team and working with technology companies for over 20 years. And the, the focus on the customer experience is like nothing I've ever seen before. So you asked about regret. I don't know that companies at this point, 18 months later, have a regret. I think they've moved beyond that. I think they have- got to do this now. <laughs> yeah, they've gone through the regret stage and they've said, okay, well, let's do this now. And so they're starting and they're driving forward at a very fast speed. Um, because they're seeing that those companies that had already made those steps, even traditional companies that had already put pulled uh, uh, digital transformation processes forward, they're looking at their competitors and saying, my gosh, they're already a couple steps ahead of me. I'm going to double down. I'm going to bring in a partner who builds um, builds custom software, can help me with this, can help me understand how to engage better. But the short answer, engagement with your consumers that's what every company is looking for. How do I increase that engagement? And omni-channel strategies are one way. No, uh, my, no. my final question, uh, can you give us a sense of the time to um, implement, adopt, and actually recognize value? So I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of your prospects and I'm interested, uh, deeply interested in developing an omni-channel strategy for my company, uh, working with um, you know, your team how quickly on average, and perhaps it varies by industry or the size of company, but, uh, and perhaps even having quality data, like you said, as an underpinning to drive improved decision velocity. What's the average time for a project where I can actually start to recognize uh, uh, return on, on, on investment? Oh my gosh, I would be a billionaire if I could answer that question. <laughs> what I can say is that there are ways that you can look at your digital, um, your digital experience and your digital journey. You can do so in six weeks and 12 weeks and get a really good idea, really okay. good assessment of where you are um, along that, that scale, right? Are you at the very beginning? Okay, maybe you said you were, but let's really assess and see where you are because you may be a little further along than you think. And mm -hmm. hey, you know, all this data over here, you may think it's in a lake, it needs to be clean. We may come in with a data assessment and find out very quickly that you can do something with that and then put a team or teams plural together and ramp up those, those digital products. So unfortunately, the answer really is, it depends on the sure. company. It depends sure. on where they are in the journey. However, you can see some differences in terms of knowledge back into those decision makers in six, eight, 12 weeks okay. in that investment to then decide, okay, here's what we learned. Now let's work on that strategy and really put time okay. and investment towards that. So I hope that doesn't just leave it that as that open-ended. No, no, no. It, it, as a practitioner, to be <laughs> able to baseline and make informed decisions within a quarter boundary, you yes. know, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> makes, uh, makes very informed decisions. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a challenge because most decision makers don't believe that. Hmm. They believe that it's this huge, you know, you have to think through it for a year or two or three quarters. And what I say to so many executives, because I've been on the, the engineering team, I get it. I've been doing this a long time is do not wait. Start small. We have something called the product mindset. We wrote a best-selling book on it. Start small. Ask what it is that the business needs to know today, and start chipping away at it. Don't don't take it before the board. You know, three quarters later, when you're now almost no, a year don't behind. do that. Start <laughs> small. Great advice. Don't do that. Great advice. So. We're here with Jennifer Ives, Senior Vice President, Global Partnerships and Alliances for Three Pillar Global with the best Twitter handle of the day. <laughs> I am Jais. Follow her for awesome insights, advice, and of course, digital transformation insights. So thanks a lot for being on the show and thanks a lot. And congratulations last year for being a BT-150 and part of the alumni. Uh, so. Thank you. I'm so honored to join you. Thank you for the BT-150 honor as well. Thanks, Jennifer. Great. Uh, great to see you. Oh my, who do we have next? <laughs> uh, that was great, by the way. That was, that was awesome. Um, our next guest, as many of uh, Disrupt TV viewers are familiar with, Dion Hinchcliffe, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Dion covers leadership strategies for the new C-suite, digital workplace, and enterprise IT. He's an internationally recognized best-selling uh, uh, author, strategist, enterprise architect, analyst, and a noted keynote speaker. He's widely regarded as one of the most influential figures in digital strategy, future of work, and enterprise IT. Often when I see most influential list, Dion's at the top. 
at the very top. Uh, he's an incredible follow because of the cadence and the quality of content he shares on Twitter at dhinchcliffe, D-H-I-N-C-H-C-L-I-F-F-E. Welcome back, Dion, to Disrupt TV. Always a great pleasure to be here, Vala. What a great introduction as usual. Uh, good to see you, Ray, and happy Friday. Thank you, sir. Happy Friday. <laughs> you know, one of the things I'm really surprised at is I, I don't have a copy of my social business by design. I think I, I think that was, like, that was an awesome book. I, I think I'll I, I got to go find that. Some, yeah. Absolutely. So, that was one of those books. You and uh, Peter Kim, who also worked here in the past with the alumni, like it was an amazing book talking about you know what was happening just at the beginning of that social business revolution. You've got a new report that builds on that years, decades of experience, and of course, working with clients, uh, really about it's a very, very hot topic at the moment that everybody must take a look at. It's called, it's around digital experience. So share a little bit about that. And of course, some of the other research that's on your end. Well, as uh, as everyone knows, uh, the world suddenly went digital last year, um, and you know workers moved, uh, customers moved, everyone had to be serviced in, in new channels and much more digitally. Uh, and digital experience is the the way that that's delivered, right? We take our content, uh, we take uh, whatever touch points that where we can reach people, and we try and create a, a fantastic uh, experience for them so that they'll they'll work with us and they'll come back. Uh, but when we're so distributed now, uh, people are uh, in so many different locations on so many different devices. How do we know that our experiences are actually any good? How do we know that we're delivering great customer experience? Uh, you know, Don't you know. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Is, you know, Drucker says, you know, you, you can't manage what you're not measuring. Hmm. And so we see digital experience uh, management is really focusing now on this measurement uh, piece. How can I make sure my workers have, you know, fast uh, efficient experiences. They're not getting stuck. They don't have problems. Uh, and, and not just in, you know, at headquarters, but now in thousands of homes. And the same thing with customers too. You know, you, you're trying to provide a great experience with them. And if, you, if you're not Amazon, you don't have your own cloud. How do you really know that last mile that you're getting these great experiences? So we have a new piece of research that really dives deep into uh, digital experience management and the ROI of, of really closely monitoring that and having a real-time uh, remediation. You, it's not something, it's like uh, the previous guest, uh, you know, Jennifer, was talking about. Uh, when you find that there's a problem, you don't sit on that. You have to act on it immediately, right? You have to take that yeah. knowledge and say, how do we, is there something we can do to improve that? Maybe their computer just slow. Maybe it's riddled with viruses. But most, most likely, there's something in, the, in your digital experience supply chain that you need to fix. And there are research found by talking to a, a number of organizations that are doing this. The more that they put this deeply into their practices as part of DevOps, uh, there is a real uh, uh, operation staff that says, uh, you know, minute by minute, day by day, uh, we're measured by how good our customer experience is or how good our employee experience is. And so uh, we were able to tie uh, digital the quality and the, and the metrics of digital experience directly back to, to business value. It's not not just you know uh, your outage numbers and, and SLAs and five nines. You know that's that's the the intermediate part of the story. How do you map it to business? We have this digital experience maturity model now to help people understand how do I tie back the most important connection I have to anybody, our, our customers and our workers combined. How do we tie that back into our business measures? Uh, because if we can do that, then we can get the investment, we can get the staff, and we can do it right. Are there a new, a new set of metrics that emerged uh, since this decentralized digital construct appeared in our, in our work and life in the last 16 months? Or are we now simply assigning higher priority to existing metrics because they point more to uh, you know, a digital experience management framework and maturity model that you've developed? So uh, there are a few metrics, but really the KPIs that we've always had are the ones that get respect. You know, if you really want to tie it back to customer satisfaction, you know, what did that customer really feel like after they were done with your experience? Were they frustrated and having to click the buttons over and over again to get your website or app to do anything? Uh, or did they buy something and it was so effortless they, that, that they're going to try that again with you first before they go back to, to an Amazon? So. Uh, you know, we see things like customer lifetime value too. Like uh, there, there's, there's real connection between having a great digital experience that thrills and delights uh, uh, your, your customers or your workers, and actual value back to your business. And so, uh, I mean, to answer your question specifically, Vala, it's uh, it is mostly uh, existing measures, uh, okay. but there you know, there is um, you know uh, uh, you know we do see that it that uh, we're changing the actual practice though. Um, 
of uh, designing our products is actually going to be now dependent on these measures in a way that we haven't seen before. So that's a, that's a great point because when when you when you when you when you talk about um, the importance of speed to value, uh, or you talk about design principles that uh, focus on a frictionless uh, experience, uh, where you where there's optimal flow of value across omnichannel. Um, across different channels, uh, there, uh, you, you start to infuse that type of thinking and, and success and, and uh, metrics in the design of a product or service. Um, you know, so when you're asking for, for example, traditional customer satisfaction or net promoter, you, you tend to ask at aggregate level uh, and may not know that, you know, a, a user's experience uh, on your mobile app may significantly vary vers versus a web, versus a phone call, versus a chat, versus a social network. So to be able to have that consistency across all channels, especially emphasizing on digital channels, knowing that, you know, we've had, again, a 10-year accelerant of digital channel usage because of the force and function of the pandemic, it does make companies think about at the beginning state design phase how is my product and service going to be used with a digital first mindset mm -hmm. and perhaps even a digital only some of these are going to oh, yeah. stick especially depending on age demographic and geography you know i don't think folks are going to revert back to some of the previous methods of engaging with a brand given the seamless adoption of again digital channels and digital experiences well, McKinsey did this great study um, uh, that showed that when sales activities and business de development activities went mostly digital, that m the majority of customers, 80% of customers preferred that, right? They, you, know, that, that's the, they, you know, they don't want the salesperson taking up their time. They want them helping them. And so really we see this outcome-based approach to everything. Uh, you know, digital experience actually is expensive to do well. If you're going to do the customer journey mapping and you're, you're going to get the, the, you know, the, the high-end platforms and you're really going to create an operation staff and you're really going to get the measurements uh, uh, tools in place to measure your entire digital supply chain. That's an investment uh, unless it's tied to specific outcomes. You know, wh what is this doing for my business? How is this helping my workers be more productive? Uh, and so we see this real outcome based operations, uh, uh, you know, and, you know, measuring, you know, the time of a sale, how much repeat business. Um, you know, uh, what is the, uh, you know, the employees NPS score back to the, uh, back to the company? Um, what is their productivity metric? So, it, and we couldn't really measure all these things before. But the beauty of digital is everything's instrumented. We we now can manage almost everything, especially since it all went digital. So it's a great opportunity, a great business opportunity. And Darian, this isn't just lip service, right? Are, are, the, are the new C-suite that you engage with and you and you uh, guide and advise? Do you actually see a shift in their budget mix, where the when you're looking at a 2021 uh, IT budget or you know, it may be chief digital officer, chief marketing. Do you see a larger allocation of budget towards digital investments where you actually see proof that, uh, yes, it is expensive, but we are going to invest to ensure we're properly positioning our company for future success? And, you know, it's like what Jennifer said before. There's a certain companies that, that come up over and over again at the top of the digital maturity list. Um, and they're the ones making those investments. If you look at what Disney invest in digital it's enormous they have yeah. look at nike invest they have a whole digital oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and so they do have experience operations they have people that are making sure that this is something you know you go to, to the website in the middle of the night and everyone's doing backups and and their nightly processes uh all that stuff is still working in high quality i mean they they, they know that it really matters and their brand is on the line when you're connected to your customer 24 hours a day and anyone can come in and you don't have any prediction uh, on that demand curve uh, that experience curve, you got to be ready for anything. And so, yeah, we do see inordinately large investments. I did an analysis of digital units a couple of years ago, um, and they spend not just a little bit more, but they spend twice as much as everybody else on, on wow. their digital experience. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, we're definitely we're definitely seeing that. You know, and and you know, just like with your OKRs, you don't want to have vanity metrics in social media or marketing, right? I mean, if it's not tied back to an action or financial metric, you're missing out. Right, you're totally not making sense in terms of that digitization or taking advantage of those demand signals. Let's switch to a different topic, one that you're always been well known for, which is really future of work, remote work, and mm -hmm. what's happening there, and how we're going to return to work. I know John's going to touch upon that in the next segment, uh, but what's really interesting is really some of the research you've been seeing and what you've been talking to, uh, you know, like some of the trends, right? Because it, it varies all over the map, uh, but you've been able to extract some of the signal from the noise. 
Yeah, so uh, yeah, this is the topic called hybrid work. How are we going to bring some people back to the office? Uh, I've done my own uh, survey just closed today, in fact, um, uh, and the final numbers were only 10% of companies are going to go back to the way it was or have plans to go back to the way it was. Wow. Uh, 20% are going to send uh, um, many of their, you know, most of their people back and 50%, 53% actually, uh, are going to send a, some of their people back, a few of them. Uh, and wait, are, are, we, are we back to suburban office parks and people living like further away from cities? Is that driving it? Or mm -hmm. is it just people love not doing two-hour commutes? Yeah, well, I predict we're going to see a lot of, um, of on-demand office space uh, like office parks for people in a given suburb. So they only have to commute a little bit to, to meet some of their coworkers. Uh, uh, and I think that you know that will certainly be the trend. We have a lot of infrastructure that is going to be greatly underutilized going forward. You know, everything from parking structures to malls to to um, office buildings that just don't aren't seeing the use. Uh, we see, and the prices are going to become so compelling to do something with them. I think that employees will, uh, companies will do many more types of events to do team building uh, and and create engagement. And maybe uh, you know when you have a hot project, you get some space, but then you go back you back home. Those types of things, uh, well, I think, will be more common. But the real concern I'm hearing, so I've talked to a lot of digital workplace teams, mm -hmm. a lot of CIOs over the last uh, two months, and saying, well, now that we're going to go back, what are you going to do? And so there's a real concern about, you know, are we going to make the the office, the if it's an office-first experience and remote experience is second place again? Are we going to go back to that? And since most people are planning to have most of their workers stay at home going forward, is what the data shows. Not just my survey, but the other surveys too. We need to create inclusion and equity for both cohorts, for both people in the office and people at work. And people are trying to figure out how to do that. How do you do agile when you're supposed to have everyone in the bullpen or everyone on the team in the same room? Do we have you know all day team you know, uh, teams or Zoom meetings up so that everybody in the office and all the people who are on that agile team at home they can all constantly talk to each other? That was the power of agile's instant mm -hmm. communication loops. If a feature changes, uh, the architect, the designer, the developer, the UX guy everyone knows about that change instantly because they can overhear it, right? So are, are we gonna create these real-time channels? Uh, we don't know. Uh, so we're entering this this period of experimentation where we're gonna, we're gonna be watching. I'll be watching closely. Mm -hmm. I'll be writing and sharing all of what we're seeing, uh, what's working and what's not. How are we gonna create equity between those two groups now? Because we're gonna have a much larger remote work population and they have to be you know, treated just as well as the people inside the office and they have to be connected together just as well. And so you sound like Rachel Happ. What's going on here? Yeah, <laughs> but part, part of that part of that being treated well, like you said, is uh, you know not turning on uh, you know financial news uh, outlets and hearing prominent CEOs say, you know, one way I measure engagement of an employee is their willingness to want to come back and work in the office, uh, explicitly stating that. Uh, this particular CEO, CEO thought that uh, office workers are more engaged and love their work and company more than the ones that are choosing to be remote. Uh, so how do you deal with that stigma that, you know, that, uh, you know, without FaceTime, you may stunt your career growth. You may not get the promotion opportunities. You might not get the sexy projects to work on. And so, uh, you know, there's a, there's a cultural element that still speaks to, and I guess your survey says one in 10 companies want to go exactly back to what it was before, regardless of whether they're actually even more productive in the last, you know, 15 months working remotely. And a lot of companies have shown record quarters, <laughs> unbelievable uh, outcomes in this new uh, decentralized digital only construct. So uh, what are your thoughts about, you know, uh, leaders, business leaders, who really believe that FaceTime is still the most important element uh, in terms of career growth. That is one way to look at it. And for certain organizations it might even be true. There are some companies that just really can only be do their work in person, but it's a minority <laughs> view. You know, Ray and I have talked to hundreds of CIOs since all this started uh, to a person. They've all said productivity is up for most people, for most workers, not all work. Um, you know, are we going to get rid of that productivity dividend? I mean, some people want to come back to the office. We should let them. Right? Sure. They, they, they work better. They, they have too many kids at home. They have, you know, we don't know what their situation is like. They just, some people thrive around the buzz, but, uh, but it turns out that most don't, don't necessarily need that. And so the proof is in the pudding. I think what it'll work, it'll work itself out. Uh, I can tell you this story. I was talking to a, a large Western uh, CPG company recently, 
And they said that before they really wanted to make people come into the office. Uh, they had some a remote work policy, but they really would try to encourage people to come into the office at these beautiful facilities. Hmm. I said, but when this all this happened, uh, it took them a few weeks. They realized that they can start drawing on pools of, of highly talented, highly motivated people that simply can't go to the major metro areas and get the, the dream jobs. They were hiring people in Peru and people in strange out of the way places or very motivated to knock it out of the park, but they can only be remote. They can only work where they are, or they have other family or personal sure. situations that simply won't let them come in. They now, you have these, we, all organizations now have this access, uh, realize they have access, because we've always had it actually since the internet, uh, of these amazingly talented, highly motivated people who simply couldn't, they didn't have access to these jobs because we didn't even think about it. Right. That's gonna change everything. Uh, you know, We talk about equity and inclusion, remote work is gonna be awesome. And bringing helping companies bring the best talent in the world to bear on their business challenges. What an amazing competitive landscape! Now it's not just city centers and a twenty-mile radius. You're talking access to talent from anywhere, and so having that flexibility where you you know give the employee an option to work from home in office or hybrid, I think that's a competitive advantage. And it is. And I, and, and you're you're speaking to someone that loved going to the office because. Fortunately, my company, our office space is beautiful yeah, <laughs> with all the amenities you can imagine, with the best views of the wherever you were. I mean, you know, so so you know, but but having that choice is 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 really ultimately the you know what 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 inspires and motivates employees, I think, to stay with companies. Absolutely, and and you should go in the office whenever you feel like it, Vala. And when you are best, you have something big you have to work on and get out. Yeah, and you can hunker down and, and not get interrupted at home. I mean, right. we're now, we, we need to have those choices. And I, so I think those CEOs that have this very limited and constrained view about where talent comes from and what's the best are going to lose out to, to much richer uh, you know, sourcing that we can do now. I agree. Yeah, no, these are all really good points. But there's a negative consequence to the fact that now, because you can work from home, you're now competing with the entire global workforce <laughs> for a job. So I think yeah. we should make sure people understand what we're getting into. As but it makes us better. It'll up, we'll up our game. It'll make everybody up their game, and that's okay. I think it'll up my game, but I'm just saying that folks that <laughs> yeah. were traditionally not in a global competitive environment in this sense of that fluidity, it's going to create some interesting scenarios for people. I get, I get email from about. Ray almost weekly that says, look, I can find better disrupt tv co-host <laughs> anywhere in the world now no multi-language more handsome ready to <laughs> i was worried that about bots now i'm worried that about this global ways, contest <laughs> yeah it goes two ways <laughs> so i'm up in my game because i know ray can find the co-host anywhere now so <laughs> no no but but the, but the second piece that's interesting to me about this is um there was something that our, our friend rachel hap wrote that was about introverts versus extroverts in the mm -hmm. office and remote work i don't know if you saw that diane um, but oh, that's a very, very interesting well. point. Yes, I know thoughts so, on that, yeah. yeah. So, because introverts are really enjoying remote work and the extroverts are dying because they want to go see someone, <laughs> right? And it's it's changing yeah, the right. office culture and dynamic right there. So something to think about as well. Yeah. The future of employee experience is about choice. And they give your work, workers the choice totally. of the best environment to get their work done and, and they will. And, you know, yeah. right no, we've given everyone choice as well. It, but you have to hire very well because not everybody does well with all the distractions that are out there. So this is going to be a very exciting year to watch and these trends that you're following, Dion. So, but hey, everybody, we're here with Dion Hinchcliffe, VP and Principal Alice at Constellation Research, world-renowned ZDNet graphics, and of course, <laughs> author, yes. strategist, yes. and of course, yeah. many, many, many roles. We're lucky to have him here at Constellation Research. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks, Thank guys. You, uh, the, 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 the graphic—I I, I forgot to mention—he's he, you the know, best infographics he, in the business. Best infographics in the business. Uh, you know, he takes complex ideas and just reduces them to a picture, which is unlike like any this other... other guest. You know, I yeah, know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorites, our favorite, our our, our cleanup hitter spot. He's absolutely first ballot Hall of Fame inductee to the Disrupt TV Hall of Fame. No question asked. He's going to get 100 percent of the vote. John Reed, who's the co-founder of Diginomica. Diginomica is a media analyst property designed to serve the interest of the enterprise leader in the digital era, launched in 2013. Uh, team of writers, analysts based in the US, Europe, that share decades of experience in terms of enterprise business computing. John has been building enterprise communities since 1995. 
He's an avid blogger, analyst. He advises vendors and startups on reaching today's informed enterprise buyer. His signature weekly column enterprise hits and misses. It strikes through the <laughs> latent enterprise review for leaders who enjoy uh, puncturing hype balloons. I love that, puncturing hype balloons. John's couriers of the uh, uh, expertise include uh, customer experience, uh, pursuit of AI analytics ROI, future uh, work, uh, work future skills development, and realities of transformation efforts. And we're going to talk about this future of work in our, in our next segment. And an, another amazing follow. We only invite people that are, have a, a, a strong game on Twitter. <laughs> so follow John at John ERP, J-O-N-E-R-P. Welcome, John. Welcome back, John, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. I got I got your bat signal, guys. We're ready. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, ready. We're, we're really excited to have you here, right? Talking about anything. I mean, we, we always give you like a list of things we want to talk about, and we never get to any of them. But let's start. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But, um, <laughs> let's just free flow this puppy. Yeah. And so but, um, let, let's talk about, let's pick up where we were with Diane about this return to work and, you know. Yeah. You know, some CEOs here are more excited about it than others, and some are more publicly at shaming than others, and some are just like, hey, what the heck is going on here? We're not going back to work. Yeah, so um, I, I prepared a countdown for you guys on what employers are overlooking, and I was like on pins and needles during Diane's segment because he's such a smart guy. I'm like, is he going to ruin my countdown by saying everything? And, and and he actually nailed one of the key ones, but but the other ones he didn't, so I think the countdown's going to be a lot of fun. Um before I get into what employers are overlooking and return to work, I do want to briefly double down on what you guys were talking about earlier. Thoughts go out to India and other India and other places where outbreaks are very intense right now. We're all connected, and we don't want you guys to think that we're not thinking about you right now because we are, and we need to do more because it's a global community around this world uh, that we live in, and we need to make sure that everyone is coming back to work healthy and safe. So, with that aside, this focus is really on the return to office controversies and discussions that we're having in this country now that we have a certain wave of vaccinations that have been achieved and so forth. Um, and I think the interesting thing about this and the way this kind of frames up is I think what we're what we're really going to get here is a much needed confrontation about different models of work. Hmm. And I love this idea. And I know, Ray, you're really big on the market kind of duking it out and companies kind hmm. of duking it out. I think this is a great opportunity to see what work models are most appealing and most effective for so-called white collar talent, right? Because that's really what we're referring to here um, is, is, is white collar talent. And so, cause, cause obviously if you're, if you're working in manufacturing or if you're an Uber driver, you're already back to work, right? So unless you're a robot. Yeah. Yeah, robot. yeah. Yeah. Unless you're being ro robotized, but that's another segment on disrupt TV. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so anyway, so that's really the sort of the context. And while I think Dion is correct that, that certain kinds of sort of, uh, models are minority. I still think that there's a number of competing models of return to work that are out there. Um, you know, there's the we'll stay fully remote model, there's the hybrid model, and then there's the get your ass back in the office model, <laughs> which is the minor, <laughs> which is the minority model. Um, but but it gets very interesting because even if you have a hybrid model, you you can still perhaps lose certain kinds of top performers if you don't do it right. And, and I would argue also, and you guys may want to talk about this at some point, I think there's a fourth very interesting model that, that's really being overlooked here because you talked about the sort of return to the suburban sort of work environment, Ray. I, I think that could happen a little bit, but I'd like to see more of a push towards really redefining sort of work in a more decentralized way. So like I think about the SWAT team approach of like having more localized offices. Zoho talks about transnational localism or infusing communities that are in need of economic development and then having smaller teams of workers. So I think there's really interesting models that might go beyond like the basics. So that's kind of how I sort of frame this conversation is, are we going to get an interesting models and are, are companies going to sort of effectively win at the art of securing the trust and, and health and safety of employees and prove that their model works. And we're about to find out. And I think that's pretty exciting. We're going to find out in a very exciting way, actually. And, and, with that <laughs> yeah. hybrid, and with that hybrid model, I think, you know, the optics, the marketing optics of a company saying we're going to have a hybrid model, it, it, it makes sense. The question is, is it four days in the office, one day at home, or is it four days at home, one day in the office? Who chooses the the hybrid model is it the employee or the employer is it depend on the you know the line of business and the manager you have but ultimately you know who where the choice resides i think it's also important because 
you could have a hybrid model uh, facade about you, but you're, you know, you're really emphasizing four days a week in office uh, and that one day at home. And, you know, that that's not necessarily the hybrid model that, that would, to me is, is a healthy uh, model. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think one of the things here is I'll be pretty ticked off if if this ends up just being a return to what was. But uh, good or bad, I don't think the coronavirus is going to let us get away with it. We can talk. I'll talk a little bit about why that is. Sure. Um, I have a dog in this fight because not only do I work remotely when I'm not traveling, but I really want to see fluid and hybrid win for many reasons, not the least of which are things you guys already touched on with Dion as far as there's big chunks of the population that for health or family reasons have been excluded from office-based work historically and unfairly excluded, I would add. And it would just be absurd after all we went through to toss that opportunity away. And I think it would also be sort of self-defeating. So this discussion today is kind of about like like, like the office. And, and I think one thing that we, there's, there's actually, although I'm not a real fan of office work, like there are some things I think we can all agree on. We're starting to get clear on what the office can do for us as far as there's certain kinds of collaboration and team building activities. I think we need to acknowledge that sure. offices are really effective for those, especially things like you think about mentoring, onboarding junior employees, oh, absolutely. Um, younger workers looking to build their community and networks. Uh, I've yeah. talked to a lot yeah. of younger workers who have really struggled with remote and it's understandable. So, But then there's the controversial parts of office, which is how essential is the office for culture building? And, and I would ask, is your company culture so weak and fragile or so over the top that you have to be in the office to, to get your culture injection? Or, or is there a big Kool-Aid machine everyone has to drink from? I don't quite get that part. And then the other part is about politics and ladder climbing. And, and I've heard people say, well, you know, you got to be in the office if you want to climb that ladder. And I would say, well, perhaps, but uh, are we really getting exciting and diverse leadership teams uh, doing it that way? Uh, Last time I checked the websites of most uh, boards of directors and executive teams, I didn't really see uh, in incredibly diverse creative leadership teams. So I'm not really sure that that the office is accomplishing those things. But I think that's a very interesting debate because we don't uh, uh, collectively we can't really agree upon that. It's something we're going to have to work work out. And and I think vendors are struggling with this. I uh, this is a true story, guys. This is ripped from my email inbox. Uh, I wish we had some like music, like the Law and Order ripped from the headlines thing, but. Uh, True story. I heard from a vendor that was all excited about their return to work plan. They wanted to talk to me about it. And they said, let's do an interview with your with our chief products officer. And they said, you know, uh, here's some data we have. And one of the data pieces was on the, the majority of their top performing women don't want to go back. And, and yet their policy is going to be three days a week in the office. And so I was like, well, what are you going to do about that? You know, you, you, your data shows these top performing women don't want to go back, but your policy requires that they do. And then I asked some more questions about their policies, including things like safety, because they're like, we're going to increase when it's safer. And I was like, well, so what does that mean? Right. Like, does, does safety just happen? Like, how do we understand the safety conversation? They pulled the interview. And uh, they literally pulled the interview. They're not ready to go on the record. And, and I think that's actually not uncommon in that there's a lot of companies that are struggling with this right now. And mm. I don't, and it's, it's not, mm. this is not an easy thing we're trying to tackle here. This is, this so. is not easy. I, I've confidentially talked to a number of CEOs where they said, look, you know, we had 20% of our employees do amazing. This is the productivity. They were running at 140%. And we had another 20% of employees. We have no idea. They were MIA the whole time. Like we looked at log files. We looked at what they were doing. We tried to figure out if they were active. Like they were basically just camping out and collecting a paycheck. So, so it's going to be interesting to see where these policies come into play. But that younger comment where you're talking about where they're unable to actually build the networks, that is happening. They can't go to events. They, ha they can't be mentored. They don't have that. Yeah. I mean, you just mentoring on digital is interesting. Like you've got to at least meet the person once and then it's okay. And we've got, you know, we've got great networks from putting so many, I mean, hours on the ground, miles and out there, yeah. right? That we can do that. But it's very hard for me to say, hey, Bala, I want to introduce you to this friend of mine. Uh, he's a great person. He's trying to figure out you know, how to build his career in X, Y, and Z. You know, let's go, let's go connect with you. And it was like, oh, what do we do, what do, what do you do, right? It just yeah. seems very awkward. We've got to learn new techniques to figure out how to do that or it's just going to make, be very hard for younger workers again. And this will be the third time they've, they've been screwed, right? Yeah. Once through the financial crisis, second through like, you know, the next you know, bust and then the pandemic. I mean, they're never going to be able to jumpstart their careers. Absolutely. 
Uh, so, with that in mind, are you guys ready for my top six? Drum roll. Here top we go. six. Oh, okay. top six. And, All right. and these, these are not in order, um, but this is just kind of how I, how I did it. Um, number six. And these, these are what employers are overlooking, or you could see it as the questions I press companies on with their return to work plans. Number six is ventilation. Yeah. So we really lack clear guidelines on ventil ventilation because most of us don't even really know the right questions to ask yet about room mm. size capacity. Look, it's unlikely we're going to get to herd immunity. The latest scientific data, and, and that, that's not what I do or don't want to be true, but the latest data says that ventilation is going to be the key to returning to indoor life. Um, yeah, creative outdoor events uh, in, in Austin, Texas are great, but like Vala, you and I, you live in Boston, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Creative, Let's creative do an outdoor out event in January. Good luck to creative you. Creative <laughs> outdoor events is not going to be a return to uh, uh, normal for anyone around here. Yeah. So we have to figure out how to make indoor safe, and we're going to have to become much more sophistic sophisticated about ventilation discussions. And it's really too bad that we didn't start having those discussions a couple years ago, but you can expect those discussions to happen with more intensity no. now. It's funny That's you say that. I, I, I am going to my first Celtics game in a year plus uh, when they host uh, Brooklyn at home. So the third game, um, playoff. playoff. Um, and I was searching. I was actually searching to see if there's anything said about ventilation for TD Garden. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you say that. And and um, so, so – In a year, every website's going to have that. Yeah, in, yeah. In I, and I'm taking my whole family. Yeah. So there's six of us going to the Celtics game. And, uh, you know, we'll keep the masks on and it's a reduced capacity, but still thousands. I haven't been in any place with thousands closed in, in, in 15, 16 months. So, yeah, it's, it's great that you brought that up because I couldn't find anything. I'm going, uh, but I, you know, and I assume it's big enough arena. Maybe I don't have to worry, but it is thousands of people going to be at that game three next Friday at, at TD Garden. So. Well, the, yep. well, and we're going to need paper. We're going to need right. that data. We're going to need that data if we yeah. want to go forward. Sorry, Ray, what were you saying? No, there's a great paper from MIT on airborne transmission of COVID-19. It's uh, worth taking a look at. There's a bunch of these. Uh, there's a bunch of seminars that's talking about what's required. So I, hopefully we'll get to some standards, but, th but there's some really good stuff there. Maybe the Celts are probably looking at that. But let's go to your next one. What do you got yeah, coming up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, we have five minutes, so I'm going to blast through these. I already mentioned this one. Hybrid is personal. One size doesn't fit all. So Ooh, hybrid choice. is great. But if you're going to impose three days a week on everyone, that the, the top performing women example was was a good one there. Uh, a return uh, for everyone isn't going to be creative enough. So it's going to have to be more flexible. I think Dion hybrid covered that point. Personal. I love I think that. Di I think yeah. Dion uh, did a good job of covering that. Um, I already kind of touched on this one too, but stop the culture and leadership BS. I've acknowledged that the office is a powerful place for certain kinds of activities, but now take a hard look at your culture and leadership team. Don't, don't tell me your leadership team is diverse and creative enough to prove that, that being in the office is working. I had a, a really good tweet on, on this subject from someone who said, yeah, that never did anything for me. I got my most important opportunities, you know, basically kicking ass on projects remotely. Hopefully that will be the case. Um, I, uh, Vala, earlier you alluded to a CEO. I'm actually going to call this one out. hope you don't have a client agreement with them, but it was WeWork CEO. I'm just going to pick on them. They're not the only one that said this, but they said people who are most comfortable working from home are the so-called least engaged with their jobs. And what I said was, in other words, without office politics and ladder climbing maneuvers, there's no intrinsic motivation or purpose for your teams to rally around. So the thing is, if you have a sense of purpose about your company, you should be able to work remotely and still feel that sense of purpose. So I, I don't agree that if, if you have to be in the office to feel that, then there's something wrong. I mean, you guys know this. You're, you're not in an office. You feel a strong sense of purpose every day. Um, so there's something wrong if you have to be in the office to experience that. Yeah, your core values are not a function of physical space. You know, when you talk about trust, customer success, innovation, equality, you know, none of those things are a function of space. I'm going to pontificate a little bit about this. Um, I'm not right. disagreeing with you. Here we you. go. Um, I think what happened is we, we, we had a lot of success with the military style of leadership in a lot of our Fortune 500 companies over the last four to five decades. And, and those are vestiges from that era, right, where, where people are in those close-knit teams, high-performing teams. And if you've got special ops teams, which is very different than operational teams versus what it is, um, it, it works. I think we're... We were in the transition of being able to operate 
um, and earn the right or the privilege to be able to work remotely. Yeah. I'm not sure how that works going forward. So, so I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think for a lot of folks, it, it's not bad. And like, it's really back to how you hire. I'm really curious as what happens when it all goes, you know, to choice. So it's, yeah. it's worth a debate. I don't think it's a bad thing. I just and the think one, people I know, know what the guidelines are. And the one thing I would say about the younger f- workforce, when you are in the office and you actually see your mentor or sponsor or a senior leader in the organization and you're, and you're, and you're deliberately analyzing their behavior, their tone of voice, conflict resolution, how they praise, how they give constructive feedback, how they, you know, how they engage with rank and file. I remember as a young aspiring <laughs> uh, employee, really studying the mechanics of how yeah, the leaders yeah. presented themselves in the office. Yeah, what and I would try to mirror some of those attributes. Um, uh, and, and so I can say that it's not the foosball table or the fancy cafeteria or dry cleaning service or bring your pet to work. Oh, none right. of that stuff. Those perks, don't, they don't necessarily shape your culture or help you become a better person, a leader. But being able to observe successful people in motion, like Watch being in the work. game, actually being, you know, suiting up and being in the game, you know, there are certain advantages to it that I think an office can provide. Uh, yeah, not but, how they work, but how they not how what they wear, but what they work. I mean, it's for yeah, right, yeah, how they work. Yeah, Sorry, I've got all yeah. mixed up. All right, well, let Go me ahead, let John, me just you got more. Let me just so. blast through the last three because we're about sure. to run out. Um, I, I refer always time before. for you, John. We're going to run into our yeah. bonus hour with John <laughs> Reed on Disrupt TV. Yeah, I referred to I referred to hot desks before, but what about hot offices? Like, what about this notion of being able mm-hmm. to create local gathering places for people who are a little more. Uh, disconnected from the main offices because if you can do that now suddenly people can move to where they want to or move and reinvest in in local communities that need economic development so starbucks buys we work in massive billion dollar deal hot office space at yeah yeah yeah. starbucks and and this one you guys covered off very well hybrid is not a caste system but that notion of how do you make sure that everyone feels included uh, e- even when some people are, are, are remote and some people are not. You did a great job, I think, with Diane of kind of outlining why that matters and why that matters for nurturing talent and being inclusive. In, in the event context, for example, I'm very frustrated with vendors who think, well, you know, now we're going to basically less than 5% of vendors have figured out how to put on a good event virtually. And they're like, oh, this is great. Now we can go back to on the ground events and we don't have to worry about this anymore. Yeah. And and I think back to a guy that I went to a couple events with who was paralyzed from the neck down. And he said, I've never been included in events more than I have felt this year. And so my question to event organizers is, what about him and people like him? Are, wow. is, he, is he excluded going forward or, or is he going to be included in your event? Because just streaming your keynote is not going to be enough for him. And the same goes for all kinds of, of people out there working remotely. They have to be included in a meaningful way. So anyway, brilliant, brilliant. that's number two. And, and number one, real quick, is what is, your, what is your scale back plan? And I hate to be a downer, but we're, we're probably not going to reach herd immunity. And that means we have to be prepared to make tactical retreats at certain points. And since I'm not a techno optimist, I can get away with saying stuff like this. I'm a, I'm a techno dystopian. Pessimist. I'm a techno. <laughs> no, I'm a techno dystopian, um, which has its own set of problems, which is why I need to be around guys like you because otherwise I would go off the rails, but but, but as a techno dystopian, I can ask questions like that. And I think they're important because we are going to have flare ups. We are going to have issues. Sure. We may have issues with variants. Who knows? We may have issues with long COVID. Who knows? The point is, we may have to scale back at certain points. So are you ready for that? The implications being like, would you force your employees to relocate right now to be back near an office? I would say no. Let's take some time on this and let's think of what our tactical retreat plan looks like, even if we hopefully never have to implement it. So that's that. That's your overlooked keys to returning to work. John, you will always be cleanup hitter on any future shows as long as Ray and I are co-hosting. Thanks, uh, dudes. Always bring your A game. That was awesome. That was Thanks. awesome. Pleasure. Yeah, no, that was amazing. And and the dystopian awesome. piece, um, um, you know, think it's not dystopian. Anything's possible out here. So it's good to be prepared. So, Clash of ideas, oh, right? Absolutely. Clash of ideas. We should actually have a cool one-hour debate on this somewhere at some other point on social. Like <laughs> some kind of social audio. Like who would use dude, a social audio network? Dude, <laughs> dude, let's just let's just uh, let's crash Twitter Spaces sometime and hash it. Be we will fun. do it. Hey, come one o'clock Sunday, Twitter Spaces. I, I do one with Gravinder. Okay. Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we hang out there. But hey, we're with John Reed, co-founder at Diginomica. 
You can follow him on Twitter at John ERP and awesome, awesome, awesome analysis. Check out, check out Diginomica for everything about enterprise software, enterprise news, and of course, follow John's tweets and of course, the show. Thanks a lot for being here, John. Thanks for being our first ballot Hall of Fame, John My Reed. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Great seeing you. Thanks. Absolute first ballot Hall of Fame. Um, and boy, boom. does it feel good for me to hold this. <laughs> you have one of a few limited copies you know, of this. Um, I was super impressed with the amount of graphics um, because I would read your thesis and then right after reading your thesis, uh, there would be graphical support of the thesis and I'm a visual person. So I really enjoyed just flipping through ideas, bold ideas, innovative ideas, and then immediately having it synthesized in a graphic. Uh, so Ray, this is, this is your, uh, without a doubt, your best work. Anyway, we'll let we'll let the, the market decide. But, we'll let the market uh, decide. <laughs> really, you. really your best work. And it took you some time to put this together. And by the way, I have an early copy, but but I do have I, I, I have I'm, I have purview to that some of the accolades and endorsements of your book. You've got some heavy hitters that have endorsed some, your some book. Very kind so, people. Um, yeah, yeah. Book, anyway, so. anyway, super congrats, guys. So get glad this. You got a copy. Men and we'll women. Enjoy it. So, this. Well, hey, uh, everybody, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, <laughs> and uh, next week, we've got some very awesome guests. And that will be our episode number two. Oh, my God. Is this number yeah. correct? 238? Yeah, so, yeah, so I, I'm not sure if we have a show next week. I don't think we have a show on June 4th. Uh, but episode 238, at least that's the note I got from our producer. If I'm wrong, let me know. But our next episode, we have Dmitry Kowalski, Chief Product Officer, Unit 4. We have Ash Fontana, Managing Director at Zeta Partners and author of a new book, The AI First Company. And we have one of our favorites, uh, Liz Miller, Vice President, Principal Analyst, Constellation Research, covering digital marketing, security, and what you know CMOs, CDOs, CXOs are thinking about as they transform their businesses. So uh, it should be an amazing- There is no show. show next week. Yep, join us June 4th. And, uh, <laughs> Breaking you know, news to Ray. Breaking you can, news you can, to you Ray. can watch replays with us and you'll be okay. <laughs> So, but hey, thanks a lot. If it's just, if it's 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on a Friday, it's Disrupt TV time. Thank you so much for watching. And of course, thanks to our sponsors, IFS and Robots and Pencils. Thanks, everyone.